Hi, this is Elizabeth Collins from New Zealand Vegan Podcast. You can find me at nzveganpodcast.blogspot.com. I'm in Auckland, New Zealand, and right now you're listening to Coexisting with Non-Human Animals. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Vegetarian. Vegan. Yeah, well. Let's get it right. You used the word animals, but I suppose what you should have said is non-human animals. Hello and welcome to episode 15 of Coexisting with Non-Human Animals, Violence. Before I start, I'd love to mention one of my new friends who listens to my podcast, Sasha James. Thank you for emailing me, Sasha. She mentions, Recently at World Animal Day in Melbourne, I was talking to some reps from Sea Shepherd and spoke to them about their activism and how it could be less confrontational and whether confrontation that puts people's lives in danger is the best method. I love hearing from listeners, so please think about emailing me with positive or negative feedback at jwontdart at gmail.com. I was lucky enough to have been on episode 49 of NZ Vegan Podcast, the second time Elizabeth had let me appear on her show. I think you should check out all episodes of NZ Vegan except 11 and 49, where I appear. I never listen to my own voice, so they are the only two episodes I haven't heard. Normally, I listen to every episode of NZ Vegan a few times. For this episode, I've been allowed permission to use part of an Abolitionist Approach Commentary episode, Professor Gary Francione speaking about non-violence. I've never met Professor Francione. We have never spoken except when he replied to a tweet of mine, which was pretty cool. I took a screenshot of his reply. Professor Francione in no way lends support to my podcast. Whatever I say on here is my own little opinion, and any clips of him I use are left in context. I'm making it clear that when what he says is not directed at anything I've asked him. I'm linking to the full Abolitionist Approach commentary episode, and I urge you to listen to the full article. I think that violence is inherently immoral. In many ways, I, uh, I have views that are similar to those of Gandhi, King, and others. I think that there's a, 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 a problem which is inherent in the use of, of, uh, of violence. And I think that the, the problems that we face in the world are all problems of violence. And I do not think that violence is going to form any part of the solution to those problems. Indeed, I think that uh, the only... Um, morally acceptable response is nonviolence. However, I am aware that many of you disagree with that. And uh, many of you think that at least in some circumstances violence can be justified and that's fine. We don't have to resolve the issue today of the ultimate moral status of violence or the, the philosophical arguments in favor or against nonviolence. We don't have to discuss those issues today. Perhaps we'll do that in some future podcasts. What I want to do is suggest to you that even if you believe that violence is justified in some circumstances, I suggest to you it makes absolutely no sense to promote violence in the context of the struggle for animal rights. Absolutely none. 
and there are practical reasons that don't require that you agree with me on the philosophical issue, the basic philosophical issue. Let me give you just one or two of, of, of the arguments that I think are quite compelling in terms of uh, opposing violence in the struggle for animal rights. The first argument is if violence is justified, who is the appropriate target of that violence? I would like to suggest that the issue that is raised in this context is similar to the issue that's raised when we are talking about animal welfare and we have the animal welfare people telling us that well what we've got to do is go after the the institutional users of animals and we've got to try to affect supply and you know through welfare reform and I've been arguing that the problem is demand the problem is not the the institutional users it's not a question of regulating the institutional users we're never going to be able to regulate them in any significant ways anyway because of the economic status of animals as chattel property but the problem is we we the consumers who demand these products if if we didn't demand them the institutional users would not be providing them the same argument applies in this context the same the very same argument applies it makes no sense to say well we think we should use violence against institutional animal users what are they doing except responding to a demand that we create if we're going to be moral if we're going to think morally about this we've got to treat similar cases similarly and I just don't see how institutional animal users are any more culpable than those of us who are demanding the products and 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 that's the overwhelming number of us so the idea that well going after institutional users is going to somehow make a difference um, is 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 just wrong first of all they're not doing anything that is morally different from what we are doing when we demand these products and secondly even if you succeed in shutting down one institutional user as long as the demand is there that demands going to be picked up by another institutional user so this doesn't this just doesn't make any practical sense moreover acts of violence have no cultural meaning in a society it's not that people are looking at these acts of violence and saying oh well yes maybe I now need to think about about animal rights there's no edu there's, no, there's nothing educational about these 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 events because there is no cultural context in in which people can understand them okay it's not like when we were dealing with race-based slavery in the United States again I'm not saying that violence is ever justified but we don't have to discuss the issue of whether it's ever justified I'm saying that in the context of American race-based slavery there was a lot of opposition to it an enormous amount of opposition to it there was a lot of opposition to, 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 to slavery right from the beginning it was never a completely accepted institution even in the South I mean it was a controversial controversial institution and what I'm what I'm suggesting is that 
to the extent that there were acts of violence in the context of slavery, those acts had had cultural meaning. They 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 existed within a cultural context in which there was a lot of opposition to slavery, and so those events had some cultural meaning. Violent actions undertaken on behalf or supposedly on behalf of animals, those acts have no cultural meaning. They don't they don't they don't mean anything to anybody. It, what they do do is 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 marginalize. They make they give people an excuse to dismiss and to marginalize the issue of animal exploitation because most people are engaged in animal exploitation. Violent acts don't get them thinking because they have no context in which to perceive or interpret these acts as having any significance whatsoever except to show that animal people are crazy or that animal people are, are it's alright to put aside or dismiss the issue because the people who are promoting the issue are doing things that don't make any sense to them. If we want a peaceful world we have to, as Gandhi said, you know, we've got to become the change we wish to see. Education here is key, and I do not accept this notion that education is passive. That's, that's someone's characterization. It's not the reality. Nonviolent, creative, vegan education is anything but passive. And again, all you've got to do is look to see what folks are doing out there. There's an emerging movement of people who are committed to creative, nonviolent, vegan education. And they're doing marvelous things. They're doing all sorts of creative things, and they're having all they're getting very good results. I've linked to the full episode in my show notes that you can find on my blog or in the lyrics section of this podcast episode. I doubt that using physical violence against corporations, property, or individuals will help veganism become respected in society. I doubt it helps animals. I'd argue that with an even a small number of violent extremists, animal rights get slandered in the media as if we are all that way. I've read stories from overseas where a mother fed her ch- children on weeds and water, and when the children were found by authorities and taken away, it was blamed on a vegan diet. There are so few vegans, at least where I live, that the actions of those covered in the mainstream media can be taken as the positions of the majority of vegans. I'd like to mention that I know people who kill animals. Some of my friends like to hunt. These large young men enjoy driving a big vehicle around remote areas at night, stunning rabbits with a spotlight and shooting them. These friends, who I've grown up with, will laugh as they talk to each other about blowing the animals' heads off, that they apparently saw one rabbit hop away, frightened, with its brain showing. I have another friend who told me about catching fish, and that one of the animals they caught wouldn't die. It was flopping around on the pavement until they cut it with a knife. I saw the photos of this fish being cut to finally kill it. It was awful. My friends holding a knife, the fish bleeding. Every day I walk past a butcher. I hold my breath as I walk past, and only breathe in next to a rubbish bin. This butcher on the same block as I live, often has what's termed home kill happening, 
A small truck drives out to a farm, kills an animal, and brings it back to be processed at the butcher shop. I'll be walking past, and I'll be able to hear the circular saws, or even see the carcass hanging outside as they carve it up, next to the many rubbish bins. Blood flows across the pavement and drains into a gutter. There's a lot of mould on the path, sprouting from where the blood usually flows down onto the road. I also walk past a dairy factory, processing cow and sheep's milk. This is society, this is what happens, and to me, it's no different than what a bunch of whalers are doing. It's technically worse if, like me, you think a life is a life. The whalers we get all upset about only aim to kill a thousand or so animals a year. Hell, in my small country of but four million people, we kill many thousands of pigs alone, every week. It's happening all around us. Am I supposed to attack the people who do these things? Should I throw glass bottles of foul-smelling liquids at them? Should I shine my own green laser pointer into their eyes? Should I protest the butcher shop and destroy the butcher's car? I don't think so. My own father worked at a slaughterhouse, a local freezing works, for about a decade. I asked him to appear on my original podcast talking about it. Here's a small snippet of my father talking about life in a slaughterhouse. I've got a special invited guest to appear on this episode. My dad, who worked for a long time at a local freezing works, slaughtering lambs. His job was to open up the sheep around the back legs. Uh, my name's Daniel Wyatt. I started out the freezing works in about 1976. I got a job there that through um, my father's, uh, or an introduction of father, um, introduced us to Charlie Calvert, who is the personnel officer there. I started on the, the slaughter board on what they called the gut trays that... Uh, they're just sort of um, sorting out things like taking the intestines off the uh, off the gut, um, the spleen. They all went down different chutes. There was four guys working on the gut trays. Um, one was just ripping the fat off that sort of, and they all went down to to be processed um, down below. Uh, probably worked just as a like a labour on the slaughter board for, I think it was only about one season, and then I. Um, uh, applied to be going the um, a learner butchers or slaughterman's um, chain, which did the next year. And because I'm uh, left-handed, they put us on um, uh, flanking, uh, which you need to be able to do a left flank, and then um, another guy will do the right flank. Uh, flanking is opening up the um, sort of the round the hind legs, preparing it for the um, the pelters who pull the um, the pelts off. My father's rather proud of the work he did. He knows many of his friends from working at the works. So, my father is really no different than any of the whalers. Would you expect me to be violent towards him, to threaten his life? I have a good friend who believes in direct action, who is a family member who lives with them, who enjoys fishing. My good friend is very against the whalers, yet... I don't really see a difference in killing a fish or a bunch of fish and catching a whale. Oh, I know that currently one is meant to be illegal, but really, a life is a life, is it not? My friend doesn't attack the family member who likes killing fish though. They wouldn't ram his car, or blind him with lasers or throw stink bombs at him. Animal use is all around us. Being violent, making threats and pulling stunts for media attention hasn't helped us. 
We need to seem credible, and not as a bunch of people who have escaped from a lunatic asylum. For the blood and guts images that some people like to use, everyone knows where meat comes from. They know that chicken was until recently a chicken. I read a history of a local freezing works. The title of the book was A Cut Above. During one of the strikes, slaughter men took sheep into the centre of my city and let them loose on the main street. The police couldn't control the animals, there were too many. Eventually, the slaughtermen took the animals to a public place and killed the animals publicly, with TV cameras recording. It's not like the freezing works hides the fact they kill animals. Perhaps people will turn away from watching it, but they know what happens. In New Zealand, everyone is somehow related to someone employed by the works. In fact, our politicians often mention that as job experience, to show they are tough and work their way up from the bottom. Being violent, apart from being downright poor manners, will only hurt veganism as a whole. If I try and stage a one-man campaign against local butchers, it's unlikely the public will side with me. Especially if I liken the butcher to Hitler, if I throw stink bombs at him, if I try and blow up his vehicle. I'd just end up in a prison cell, and, judging from the court notices in the local newspaper, there's a lot of slaughtermen convicted for crimes. The vast majority of cases seem to be carried out by tradesmen and freezing workers here. During my father's time at the works, they enjoyed throwing guts at each other. They would try and upset repairmen, who were city boys. I'm sure slaughtermen who were in jail for violent crime would have a great time with an animal rights activist behind bars. Speaking of prison, one of my uncles spent time locked away for manslaughter. My uncle had a rough life. He had been to prison before, and at the time of this incident, he was living in a rehabilitation facility in the South Island. A little like a retirement home, I think. The former inmates lived in small houses, and I guess they were somewhat supervised, as a sort of test to see how they would get on in the real world. I think they were allowed to drive. I think they were pretty much independent. They just happened to live in this area, with other similar people. Once... My uncle got in a fight with a mentally unstable older man. Apparently, the man attacked my uncle, and in the scuffle, my uncle pushed him down to the ground. From memory, I believe the man died from a heart attack or a seizure. I was never told much. My family treated me as if I were too young to understand. My uncle didn't set off any explosives. He didn't ram the man's vehicle. He didn't shine lasers in his eyes or throw stink bombs at him. He basically pushed the guy away and the man died. I don't remember how long my uncle spent in jail, a few years. I asked him, a few years after he got out, what it was like in prison, and he seemed to have enjoyed himself. I'm not sure if that's the right term, but at least afterwards he could laugh about it. He remembers the inmates making jokes about how stupid the wardens were. He remembers working in the prison workshop, making a couple bucks a week stamping out crappy furniture for a large, overpriced Australasian retail chain. A few years later, my uncle lost his long-time battle with cancer, and he died. I remember when I was about seven, and one of my grandfathers died, essentially from smoking. I was sick with the measles before he died. I couldn't go and see him at the hospital. 
I remember being very upset that I was not allowed to say goodbye. It felt so unfair to a small boy. I waited in the car, and my grandfather appeared above me in one of the large windows. I think he briefly waved at me, but he was so far above the ground, and I could barely make him out. I realized it was him, of course, but it felt so distant, not being able to say goodbye. My mother had brought me a Thunderbird's toy, Lady Penelope's Pink Rolls Royce. I have it on my desk now as I record this. She had gotten this for me to make up for not being able to say goodbye to my grandfather. I held this toy while I waited in the car. Let's say the car cost ten, twenty dollars. It's not equal to being able to say goodbye to a loved one. I remember promising my grandfather's body at his funeral that I would never smoke. When I saw my uncle last, he was in a very bad condition. He was truly skeletal. His head was a skull, and his organs were shutting down. His stomach was essentially a bag on the outside. He carried a hemp bag with this plastic stomach that looked like an IV bag. He had felt hungry for the first time in days, and his first meal had been potatoes and gravy from KFC. You could see it inside the bag; it looked gross. I never got to go to my uncle's funeral, but I decided that I'd avoid violence whenever possible. I don't want to be locked away for pushing someone. My uncle was away from his daughter's early teenage years. He died fairly soon after getting out of prison. His daughter never got to spend that time with her father. Accidents happen. Life is precious. We shouldn't go risking ours or that of others. So, what is my suggestion then? I want to end on a more positive note. Not all animal rights podcasts have special effects. I'll tell you up front, there are going to be no bells, whistles, music, or anything like that. This is not going to be entertainment. I uh, guess it's bad form really to start off with a, an in-joke, but I'm going to do it anyway. And there's the bell. <laughs> there's the whistle. Okay, so that bit's over and done with. I'm going to one-up Roger by playing the most advanced instrument known to man and woman alike, the diatonic harmonica. Behold! signature piece that's always a hit with the ladies. You might be saying to yourself, well, Jordan, those were some lovely songs, seemingly performed by a five-year-old. But what did that have to do with animal rights and creative, non-violent education? Perhaps Roger would like a rematch. His vinyl collection against the musical apps on my iPhone. I'm fond of the Daft Punk-themed iDaft app. It's basically buttons that you push to fire a sample from a couple Daft Punk songs. Okay.
Well, it just so happens that one of my favourite movies is A Clockwork Orange, and I've just finished the audiobook. I hope you are all very familiar with A Clockwork Orange, all about gangs of young teens running amok. Rape, murder, droogs, toll chocking gullivers? The main character Alex is certainly not vegan. He enjoys steaky wake and eggy wigs and maloco, laced with potent drugs. What I want you to remember is one part in particular, the Ludovago technique. Alex, a humble narrator, chooses to try a rehabilitation program to cure his hankering for the old ultraviolence. He's strapped into a chair, and with his eyes held open, forced to watch brutal violence in a movie theatre. He hates it, screaming to the doctors to stop. The thing that seems to get to him the most is that classical music is played. Alex loves classical music, and especially Beethoven's Ninth. I learnt part of this at school is Ode to Joy. It happens to be the anthem of the European Union. Whenever Alex thought of using violence, he would feel sick. Whenever he heard classical music, it would put him off using violence. I'll play it now for my friends who believe that animal rights are attained by throwing stink bombs, shining lasers in people's eyes, ramming ships, blowing up buildings and angrily confronting people who wear fur. I hope that this activates your own form of Ludovago technique and makes you stop using violence. I truly believe that promoting veganism through creative, non-violent means is the best way to help animals. I put my heart and soul into that breathtaking performance. Any mistakes were intended. I hope you'll decide to promote veganism using creative and non-violent means. Thank you for listening to Coexisting with Non-Human Animals. You can find the script for this episode as well as downloads for every episode of Coexisting with Non-Human Animals at coexistingwithnonhumananimals.blogspot.com If you want to contact me, even just to praise my musical genius, send an email to jwontdart at gmail.com or on Twitter, twitter.com slash j-a-y-w-o-n-t-d-a-r-t. I'd appreciate it. Thank you for listening. Away from the notion of animals as things and toward the moral personhood of animals. The choice is ours. If you're not vegan, go vegan. It's easy. It's better for you. It's certainly better for the planet. And most importantly, it's the morally right thing to do.